You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. John chapter 4 is where we'll be tonight. And uh, started a, a couple of weeks ago, I, I started a message on, I mean, I called it Visitation with Jesus. And uh, just looking at the example that Jesus Christ gave here in John chapter 4 about how, to, how he witnessed to this, the Samaritan woman at the well. And the approach that he took in talking with her. And it's been on my mind to preach a couple of messages on, on outreach and, or soul winning or door knocking or visitation evangelism, whatever you want to call it, and, and this was the first of those, um, and then I, but I didn't finish the whole message. There was a lot of material, and it would have been a long Wednesday night, so I cut it in half, and uh, here we are finishing that up here tonight, and some years ago, an evangelist from New Zealand named Ray Comfort, maybe you've heard of him, he wrote a book called The Way of the Master, and uh, it shows us how to pattern our presentation of the gospel Um, after Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well here in John chapter 4. And truth is, is there a better soul winner than Jesus Christ? No. Okay, I hope you would say no to that. Maybe you can learn how to visit from anyone. Who better than Jesus? And uh, the way the Lord speaks with this Samaritan woman, who honestly, if we we could give you the background again, um, no one would have thought twice if he had just ignored her. He didn't have to be there at all in the first place, but he went out of his way because he wanted to confront her about her sin and give her the the good news that the Messiah, the Savior, has come. And it's the Lord himself confronting this lost woman about the condition of her soul. So we started then walking through the passage to see his approach. And and I'd like to finish that up tonight. Um, And it's a very practical look, so it may feel maybe more instructional But honestly, there's a lot of deeply convicting thoughts as well. When you consider um, the need for soul winners, you consider the need for God's people to be ambassadors. Uh, We the world needs it. I mean, I was just—if you just read the news today, then you saw uh, you saw shooting in Buffalo. You saw shooting at a church in California just today. Shooting at a flea market in Houston. I mean, all of those things happening today. Our, our world is not getting any better. Uh, men are sinners. Um, so, are, so are women. Women are sinners too. The women are like, yes, we got off. No, we're all sinners. And the world needs to hear some good news for once. So I want to read this. John chapter 4. We'll read down through verse 26. And uh, let's read every other verse, okay? I'll read verse 1. Actually, let's read verse... I will start in verse 4. I'll read verse 4. You read verse 5 and so on. We'll go every other one. Sometimes this is dangerous because I've thought through some of the pronunciations, but that'll just be an adventure. Okay, John chapter 4, verse 4. I'll read 4. You read 5. I'll read 6 and so on. John 4, 4. And he must needs go through Samaria.
Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well? And drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The For thou hast had five husbands, and whom he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that saidst thou truly. Very perceptive. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Powerful words. You almost just imagine when he says, I that speak unto thee, am he that everyone just fell over. You know, that's the way I envision it. That's uh, anytime when, when Jesus says, I am, I mean, the word of God, I am coming forth. I mean, you just can't hardly imagine somebody could stand. And this is such a powerful story. And we could break down verses and we could look at details. But tonight I just want to be a fly on the wall. A fly on the wall, the silent partner. You know, the silent partner, that's what I always was with my dad. I would, like, control the kids and turn off the TV and, like, get the dog out the door while he's talking to somebody, the silent partner. Well, if you can do that with Jesus and just get a glimpse into how he talks to people about their soul's condition, well, we have a lot to learn. So let's pray and ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, we love you. 
Thank you for the spirit tonight. And thank you for uh, these good folks who have come ready to hear. And, and God, I pray that even though it's instructional, that we would through the whole, the whole process here tonight be reminded of how convicting it is to think that, that we have a responsibility as disciples in a local New Testament church to give the gospel to those that need to hear it. And God, how often we pass by so many who need the Lord, and yet we go about our business. God, I thank you for your example of stopping for this woman at the well who nobody else gave the time of day to. And that you took the time to tell her, and Lord, she's been in heaven for about 2,000 years now because you stopped at a well. And I'm so thankful for the truth. I'm thankful for the example, and I pray that you'd help us to learn and our minds would be open in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We were still in Oklahoma on Thursday when Audrey uh, texted or called Aaron, I can't remember, um, and told her about this crazy storm coming through Sioux Falls. The derecho. It just sounds brutal, you know. It sounds mean. And Audrey was working at Chick-fil-A and she said they'd closed the store and it was kind of in lockdown mode and and we thought, well, it must be some storm, but you know, we're from Oklahoma, we're used to storms. But then we started getting pictures and videos from people, and we were like, we don't see storms like that. I mean, that's crazy stuff. I mean, Brother Samuel, his timing is so impeccable. He's always in the wrong place at the right time. He sent a video of him. He's driving on Highway 11. Back, I had asked him to go visit Ray Vermolm, you know, so he was, he was coming back from visiting Brother Ray, and... And, of course, he's like, oh, when should I go? I'll go when there's the derecho coming. And he stops on Highway 11. The storm's coming through. It looks like a hurricane at midnight, except it's 5 o'clock. We were like, I cannot believe this. I had heard of a derecho before. And in and Iowa a couple years ago, there was one, and that one was really brutal. I mean, even higher winds than what we had here. But if it never happens here again, I'm okay with that. My first thought, obviously, was Audrey because she was uh, in town by herself. When we knew that she was safe, then my next thought, then uh, my next thought was, honestly, it was the church roof. No offense. <laughs> I should have been thinking about you. <laughs> but I was like, those shingles haven't been laying there long enough, Lord, to be taken home to glory just yet. I give them some time on earth. So, Lord, help our new roof to be on the roof and not in our bayou. You know, that's what I was thinking so so this morning I, I asked brother Phil and I, I don't I don't know why I used all of that but I was I, I led it up to 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 say that I asked brother Phil this morning I I went and said okay can you schedule us in in your busy planner which I'm sure as a roofer he's got a busy schedule now can you schedule us in and get up on the roof and tell us what you see you know if we and he, he thinks that we should be okay there's a few shingles poking up still but he thinks we should be in pretty good shape but you know the truth is if I'm gonna have questions about roof a uh, roof I'm gonna ask Phil Everett he's a roofer if I have questions about cars I'm gonna ask brother Craig or brother Heath I'm gonna go ask a mechanic and if I have a question about auto parts I'll call Dana Mauer because he knows about those if I have a question about skateboarding I'll ask Josiah Mauer if I have a question about disc golf, I'll ask Joseph Maurer. I mean, the Maurers are, are good resources. It's like Wikipedia in a household. So, you know, if you're going to learn, though, ask an expert. If you're going to become a good witness, study Jesus. 
Study his conversation with the woman at the well to learn how to talk to people about sin and eternity. And, and this, a couple weeks ago, then we looked at four principles. We only really got through two of them, but we looked at these four principles that he uses in a masterful way to take this woman from where she was to where she needed to be in order to receive uh, the gospel, to receive the truth about Jesus Christ. We could, insp- we could spend an entire message on all these principles and but I'm just going to do a quick review of the first two and then give you the second two tonight and, and just look at these. These four principles that we see from Jesus Christ are relate, create, convict, reveal. Relate, create, convict, reveal. And if you're going to pattern your witnessing, your presentation of the gospel to somebody, these are four very important words straight from this encounter with the woman at the well. Relate, create, convict, reveal. Relate. What does that mean? Well, verse 7 says, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. He talked to her about something tangible. He talked to her about something common. He talked to her about water. When I visit, I I do my best to connect with those at the door about anything I can think of in the moment. Yes, just yesterday, Brother Colin and I, uh, Colin Crable and I were out door knocking and and I I knocked on a door and a lady answered and and she she didn't look real happy that we were there. But I noticed that she had a Who Hot shirt on and I'm an expert at Who Hot. I was like, I see your shirt. I can't, I mean, I've got to say something about it. I love who hot. She's like, and her, literally her whole countenance changed. Um, Colin did, it, her whole countenance changed from what are you doing here to oh, I love who hot too. I mean, I didn't even know they had who hot shirts and now I, I need to get one. <laughs> who hot? You know, I mean, it, it gave us something to relate about. Now we went to another guy and he was sitting in his garage and he was watching uh, racing. On the, he has a TV in his garage and his garage was impeccably built to be a man cave. And I'm telling you, it was glorious. I mean, all the signs and all the posters and, you know, mostly racing and, you know, just manly stuff. And, and he had it. It was just exactly like a man cave probably ought to be. And so I walked in and he's sitting there watching the race in the garage by himself and we walked up there, and, and at first he looked at us very skeptically. But then, Colin can tell you this, I complimented about him about his man cave, and his face just changed. He, he lit up. I'm telling you, uh, we don't, not every confrontation or not every encounter, when you're giving the gospel somebody, to somebody, it doesn't always have to be a confrontation. It doesn't always have to be negative. You can relate to people if you can kind of think on your feet pretty quickly. And Jesus talks to this woman about water. He doesn't start with spiritual jargon. He, he starts talking to her about water and allowed him then to move on to something more spiritual. But relating to people is one of the most important factors in witnessing. Be relational. Don't, don't just be robotic. And when young people are learning, and I've, I've seen this with young people, you know, uh, we, we've taken uh, young people out. We've trained them uh, for a number of years on how to present the gospel. And at first it's like, hi, my name is Jacob, and I'm from Eastside Baptist Church, and we are wondering if you, you know, how they, you know, you're learning. Well, you get to the place where it's conversational and get to the place where it's natural. You have to work at it. Uh, young people, you've got to work on that. I mean, even... I mean, in your room, late at night, you know, just when no one's watching, work on making it natural. 
And you have to do that. You want that to be natural. You, you want to relate to people. That, that means your physical appearance should be a certain way. You're, you've got to have good manners. Don't walk on the grass. Those kinds of things. Be aware of personal space, especially this day and age. Uh, practice a good introduction. Introduce yourself. Introduce your partner and give the church name. But, but try to relate. Be complimentary about their car. Be complimentary about their house. If they have a, 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 a team flag flying you know mostly usually it's the vikings around here or the twins or something like that ask them about it or the, the corn huskers boo if they have a favorite team just ask them find out their name and and use it you know be 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 personal be aware you know if they're on the phone it's probably not a great time to really kind of keep pushing um don't ignore it if they have company i mean if don't 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 just assume that they're they're in good shape to talk if they've got people sitting at their dinner table if they're on their way out, offer to come back later. Read their body language. I mean, you really do have to do those things. Witnessing is about building bridges and planting seeds. It's about building bridges in that you're trying to connect with them. You're trying to relate to them. But it's about planting seeds because sometimes you don't really have an opportunity to connect with them. You don't have much time to relate to them. But you want to plant a seed that's positive in their mind. So when the next person from Eastside comes by in a few months... They'll have a positive memory of Eastside Baptist and they won't immediately just turn it off. It may be that God has you there to plant the seed and somebody else is going to come by and water it. Build bridges, plant seeds. So that's relate. And then we talked about create. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee living water so Jesus Christ uses this encounter of relating this with this woman talking about water to create an opportunity then to mention something that's spiritual and he uses water to get there and in my opinion the best way to create an opportunity to transition to spiritual things is to just randomly bring up the church question you know something like do you have a church home that you attend and I usually ask, again, I usually ask, do you have a church home that you attend? Because most, almost everybody around here is going to say, yes, I have a church home. But when you say, do you have a church home that you attend, they may not, they may not say yes to that. Just yesterday, again, with Brother Colin, I was asking, I asked this guy, well, oh, you have a church home that you attend? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, we go, I go to, uh, oh, what is that called? Um, it's over here, it's up here, oh, um, my wife goes more than I do, and I was like, "Yeah, that's I, that's obvious, you know that, you know that happens a lot that people they claim a church home, but they but they don't go to their church very often. But you use then that church question to transition to a spiritual question. And the most important question that you can ask in pre presenting the gospel to somebody is this: even more importantly than, or even more important than where you go to church is the question of what happens after we die. Would you mind if I ask you a spiritual question? See, because you have to get to the place, Jesus said, you know, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water. He uses this transitional statement, and it's good for us to practice a statement that gets us from the relating to the creating an opportunity. You know, again, more importantly than where you go to church is where you're going to spend eternity. Do you mind if I ask you, a spiritual question about that. Practice that. That was the, the transition when we, when we were taking our young people through it that we, that we worked on the most. 
You know, that transition, it goes from the relating to the creating the opportunity to talk about spiritual things. And if they're open to it, which can be rare, honestly, that, that, they, that they say, oh, yeah, I would love to sit down and have you teach me all about Jesus. Now, when that happens, I hope you're ready because that's great. Um, take that step. And, 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 but then, but, but I usually give then a scenario. And I usually, and I've talked about this last time, I usually give the scenario about standing at the gates of heaven. If you were standing at the gates of heaven and Jesus Christ was to welcome you there and say, okay, it's good to see you, uh, why should I let you into heaven? The reason that I think that that's a great scenario, it's a good way to ask it, is because it forces somebody to give you the reason why, you, why they think they should be getting into heaven. If you say something like, do you know 100% for sure that you're going to heaven, and they say yes, then you, then you have to ask another question to get to them, them to explain why. But, you know, just to give them a scenario, it's hypothetical, it's a little bit less threatening, you know, I, you, you just have to give, and I know you are talking about their death, so you have to be careful about that. You know, let's say the derecho came through and took us all out. And, you're, you know, you have to be careful. But, but I do think it's good to give them a scenario like that. If you're standing there at the gates of heaven, Jesus asks you, why should I let you in? What would they say? What would you say? And if they give you the correct answer, that's great. If not, just proceed. If they say something like, well, I've been baptized, which, which happens a lot. A lot of people are trusting in their baptism and not putting two and two together from Scripture that baptism takes place after salvation. It's faith in Christ, then baptism as a public testimony of what Jesus Christ has done in you. And we, that's, that's the order. And they say, I've been baptized. You can respond with something like this. Be complimentary. Say something like, I'm thankful that you've given thought to your relationship with the Lord. It's important, but that you realize that, the Bible, that in the Bible, Jesus Christ doesn't say that baptism is what saves a person. Would you mind... If I took a few minutes to show you from God's word how you can know for sure what will happen to you after you die. You know, and if the Lord is working and the Holy Spirit is working and they say yes, then you can carry on. And this point in the conversation is very important. If the person acts impatient, if they act irritated, then the chances are they're not ready to move to that next step. And that can be disappointing. Maybe that's happened to you before where you have a good conversation, somebody seems very open and you're having, you're talking and you're relating and then you, trans, you transition and they're, they're all with you all the way through. But then you take them to the point where you say, would you mind if I show you from the Bible? And that's very often when someone says, yeah, we're done. And it can be disappointing. And that can be hard to hear because you want, you really want them to hear the gospel and But remember, you're planting seeds. And you don't want to deal with them in such a way that somebody coming behind at a different uh, point comes in and and they they don't want to hear it at all. You want to leave the door open. Plant a seed, let somebody else water it. And listen, I, I do know, and I've done this myself, where you really try to kind of force your way through it and you really want them to receive Jesus Christ. But I remember Christ's words when says that say, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. There has, the, the Lord has to be at work. God has to be working on a heart of, to do the work. And if that person is open, then you can move on. But if they're not, then just ask God to let somebody else come along and, and maybe they can water the seed that's been planted. 
So, so then we come, so we've got relate, which is relating and connecting with people. Then you've got create, which is to build a bridge, to, to transition from the relating to a spiritual conversation. And then we have the third point here, which is convict. Convict. Look down at verse 13. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. So after Jesus Christ, um, he starts there to really get into the convicting part of it and, and salvation and eternal, this everlasting water, everlasting life. Then she responds with, sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. So she says, her response is, hey, I want water like that. If it means that I don't have to drink anymore, if it means I don't have to keep coming to this well in the heat of the day, well, I'll take that. You know, and that, and that is, in, in many ways, that's how the gospel gets presented in the modern church culture. And that, you know, it, 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 everything is good. You just receive it and God will make everything good in your life. It'll make, he'll make it easier. It'll be more convenient. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. I mean, like we talked about even this morning, um, is that Jesus compares, the analogy Jesus Christ uses to discipleship is a plow, it's dirty and it's exhausting and it's sweaty and it's hard. That's discipleship. So if anybody says that discipleship is a life of ease and if you do this, it's going to make everything convenient and he'll bless you with everything you ever wanted. All your dreams will come true. No, that's, that's not what Jesus Christ is saying. The woman still doesn't have it. It seems that she wants the water. She wants water like that. But, 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 but there's a disconnect in that she's not convicted about her sin yet. She wants the benefits, but she doesn't realize, though, that there is a, a step in between that you have to come to the point where you honestly admit your sin and recognize that you're guilty before God. See, Christ used the law to bring her to the point of repentance. Galatians 3.24, and you've probably heard this verse, but it says, The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law is simply there to teach us that we're guilty. Verse 16 right here, Christ uses the spirit of the seventh commandment, um, which says, thou shalt not commit adultery. He says in verse 16, Jesus saith unto her, go call thy husband and come hither. You know what he's just done? He's just taken it from the benefits of the well, of the living water, to, okay, now it's time to confront where you really are. To this point, it's been, here's the benefits. You can have everlasting life. You can have living water. And then he says, in, in the way that only Jesus Christ could, go and call thy husband. And in the spirit of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, he's about to confront her about her sin. He's about to reveal to her her sin. And, he, and the lost person has no concept of their sin and standing compared to the righteousness of God. If you ask most people, if you ask most people that, that maybe don't even have a relationship with God, they'll likely say, I'm a good person. The Bible even says there's a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. 
Most people like to see the best in themselves. They like to see the good in themselves. But listen, if they've never compared themselves to the righteousness of God, they might appear good to everyone else, but compared to God's righteousness, then there's not much good. Now, in this culture, it doesn't take much to stand out. It doesn't take much to look good in this culture. Uh, There's a little girl, and, and she passed the sheep standing out in this green pasture. And she thought to herself, wow, look how white that sheep is. Well, a little bit later, it began to snow and, and she went back, bypassed by that sheep again. And now the sheep was not standing against the backdrop of the green pasture. The sheep was standing against the backdrop of the, of the fresh new white snow. And her thought this time was, wow, how dirty that sheep is. See, when you're comparing to the backdrop of culture, you might start to think, well, I'm pretty good. But when you compare yourself to the backdrop of God in his righteousness and in his holiness, then you start to realize, well, I'm not so good. And that, that, that picture is there in the story of that sheep, that when we have the snowy white righteousness of God's backdrop, suddenly we see ourselves in reality. And we must show people they are lost before they can understand their need to be saved. And I do believe there are those that fall under the trap of just saying, oh, here's the water, you can have it all, and they give it to you, but you, never, but you bypass the, the, the part that convicts them about their sin. And if the, Spirit of, the Holy Spirit is not convicted about their sin, then I certainly doubt that the salvation could, ta- could actually take place. We must convict the lost like a civil law convicts those who break it. When they compare their actions to what the law says, it becomes obvious they're guilty of breaking the law. We must show that sin is breaking God's law. Let me illustrate it like this. Let's say I told you, I have good news. Someone just paid that $25,000 speeding fine you had. This hits a little close to home based on What happened to my wife yesterday on the way home from Oklahoma, which we won't talk about. (laughs) This illustration was already in the message before that happened, so God knew. (laughs) Now, if someone comes to you and says, I have good news. Somebody paid your $25,000 speeding fine. Now, if you didn't didn't know you had a $25,000 speeding fine... That wouldn't mean anything to you. But if I said on the way here you were clocked going 65 miles an hour through an area set aside for a blind children's school. Shout out to James over here. Blind children's school. You were going 65. The speed limit is 10. They clocked you because it's Iowa. They took a picture of your plates instead of confronting you like a real man does. Amen, that's right. No bitterness there. (laughs) Listen, the law was about to take action and they were going to send you a $25,000 speeding ticket, but somebody else stepped in and paid that fine for you. Listen, if I never clearly explained that you violated the law, you wouldn't appreciate that somebody paid your fine. But once you understand that you violated the law and you had this large fine to pay, the good news truly becomes good news. 
And we have to help people to get to the point where they need the good news. They're looking for something because we get them to the point where they're lost. We get them to the point where they're convicted. I heard somebody, an evangelist, he, he, he used the law and said it's like the dentist's mirror in, in that if you've got, I don't like trips to the dentist, but, but they're helpful and a dentist's mirror it has a job. Its job is to reveal cavities. It doesn't drill. It doesn't pull your teeth. It doesn't provide the solution, but it does reveal to you that you've got a need. The law is like a dentist's mirror. The law is also like a flashlight. The same evangelist, he said that the laws, like a flashlight, if the power goes out, you use the flashlight to get to the fuse box, you find the, the blown fuse, and once it's discovered, you don't insert the flashlight into the place of the fuse so the power guts go, comes back on. No, you shine the flashlight on the fuse box so you know where the blown fuse is and you can get a new fuse and you put the new fuse in, but after that's done, you don't need the flashlight anymore. That's what the law does. It's not there to fix us. We don't keep the law to get saved. No, the law reveals to us that we're not, that we're lost. Dr. Phil Williams, not Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil Williams, <laughs> Dallas Theological Seminary, he wrote, the law is the light that reveals how dirty the room is. It's not the broom that sweeps it clean. He also said, it's a mirror. The law of God is like a mirror. A mirror shows you the truth. If you have a dirty face, you don't try to wash yourself with that mirror. Its purpose is to reveal your need to be cleaned. Trying to keep God's law is like trying to wash your face with a mirror. It doesn't work. That's not its purpose. And we must, though, bring people face to face with the fact that their sin is the breaking of God's law and that they stand guilty and open to God's wrath because of it. Romans 3.19 and 20 says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. It points us to the solution. It doesn't fix us. The function of the law is to bring people to the knowledge that their sin and, and the wrath they face from God is present because of it. So how does this happen? I mean, how do you show somebody? Well, when I, when I am presenting the gospel to somebody, I literally turn to Exodus 20. I literally take them to the law and I... And I, if, depending on how much time I have, I read through the Ten Commandments and I try to help them to see how, they're bro how they've broken those Ten Commandments. And usually I set it up and say, let's just imagine that this is a test. This is a ten-question test. And we're going to see how we compare to this test. And every question is a pass or fail. And then we literally take them through the law and, and, you, and you explain what that law means and then you ask them if they think they've passed or failed. Let me just give you an example. So you would take them to Exodus 20 and you might open it to verse 8 and you might say, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And I would ask a question like this, say, have you always given God? Always. Have you always given God one day a week to worship and honor him? And the honest people will say, no, I haven't always given God one day a week. And what you've done is you've just showed them from God's law that they've broken it. 
Or I might, would take them to Exodus 20, 12. Honor thy father and thy mother. And I would ask the question like this. Have you always honored your father and mother in every decision, in every attitude, in every word, in everything? Have you always honored your father and mother? And the honest people would say, no, I haven't always honored my father and mother. And what you've just done is you have, re, you have convicted them, not, not in your words, but you've convicted them through the law of God to let them see that they have broken God's law. And listen, if you spend enough time in God's law, you don't have to convict, convince somebody of their lostness because they see very clearly that God's standard is here and, my, and where my reality is way down here somewhere. And even if they say, well, you know, I only missed one, then you can take him to James 2 and said, if any man offend in one point, he is guilty of all. This is a pass or a fail. You either have to be perfect or, or one, even 9 out of 10 is a fail. And he used the law to convict them of their sin. And at this point, listen, I'm telling you, and I've seen this happen before, that you convict somebody to the point where they are just ready to hear something that's positive. They're just ready to hear something that's good. You've allowed the law, you've allowed God's word to do it. And that's when you go from convict to reveal. Look down in verse 25. John 4, 25 says, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah is cometh which is called Christ, when he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. See, Jesus Christ follows up the bad news of her sin and how he's talked about her adultery and she, and she knows that she has broken God's law. She knows that it's, it's not right what her lifestyle that she's been living. But Christ doesn't leave her hanging. He follows it up by revealing to her that Jesus Christ the Savior has come. And if she had justified her position and instead of acknowledging her sin, it wouldn't have mattered if Christ had revealed himself because in her mind, I'm not lost. But she knew she was. She knew she needed help. And, but and once somebody acknowledges their sin and acknowledges their guilt before God, it's then time to tell them the good news of salvation. The gospel literally means what? It means good news. It, it, when someone is truly convicted of their sin, they need good news. For the wages of sin is death. But what? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 8. But God commendeth. Right. The good news. You get them to the place where, where you've convicted them of their sin through the use of the law, through the use of the word. And then you come in and you give them good news. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The law left us guilty and in need of mercy. But God sent Jesus to take care of our penalty by dying in our place. That's the good news. He, not just, he didn't just die, he rose again. You can illustrate it with substitution, the idea of substitution. So we'll go back to a fine that's owed. And, you know, the penalty for sin is death, the Bible says. And because God is just, that penalty must be paid. The problem is we can't pay the price for sin on our own. Knowing this, Jesus voluntarily paid it. Here's the illustration. Imagine you're standing in front of a judge. And you're guilty of many terrible crimes. And the judge says, the court hereby sentences you to life in prison 
uh, or you pay $500 million. I know that's a crazy number and not necessarily realistic, but I'm just trying to point, make the point. See, the truth is you can't pay it. That's the idea. So you reach into your pocket and you pull it out and all you see is lint. And it appears there's no hope for you. And just as the judge is about to bang his gavel on the desk, some man steps forward. And not just some man, some man whom your crimes affected personally. He steps forward with a checkbook and he, and he says, you all know me, you know I'm a multi-billionaire and, and listen, I want to pay this person's fine for them. So right there in the court, he, write, he pulls out his checkbook and he writes a check for all the money that you owe and you get to walk out free because he paid your fine in full. Listen, I know that's a crazy illustration, but it's really not that crazy because it happened about 2,000 years ago. And that Jesus Christ died for us and paid for our sins. We broke God's law, but Jesus paid our fine. It's literally what happened. Here's one more good illustration to get them to understand the responsibility. So then you would ask something like this. Okay, what would you think about me if after that man wrote out the check and gave it to the judge, I walked up to the judge and I took that check and I said, you know what, I don't need your help. And I took his check and I said, no, thank you. I can figure this out on my own. And I ripped it all up and I threw it away. You know, the person at the door looking at you would say, you're dumb. Why would you do that? Except that people all the time, every day, do that with the offer of Jesus Christ and his payment for their sins. He paid the, the payment, he paid the fine, he paid every penny that they owed. And yet many, many people say, no thanks, I can handle this on my own. I've got my own plan. You would think they're crazy, but Jesus has done everything for you. You have to, all you have to do is accept his payment on your behalf. And you say this to them. You say he's not asking you to earn it. He's not asking you to work for it. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Even if you wanted to, you could never do anything about it. $500 million, who could pay that? The Bible says it this way. With a heart man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All you have to do is receive the payment. Relate, create, convict, reveal. That's the pattern. That's the fly on the wall look at how Jesus Christ convicted somebody about their sin and revealed himself to them. So the questions that I want to ask you tonight, could you walk somebody through a gospel presentation? Could you take somebody through, if, if you were given an opportunity to get one shot, somebody comes in and says, listen, I, I'm about to leave, I'm, I'm, I'm moving away, and I just want somebody to tell me before I go how to be saved. And listen, this is the one shot you have, could you do it? The most important piece of information the world, in the whole world is the gospel. How can those of us who've benefited from it the most not know it forwards and backwards? More importantly than your plan, do you have a burden to tell the lost that they're on their way to hell? Do you? See, have you gotten used to the fact that most people go to hell when they die? Well, I hope not. What if it was your eternity at stake? 
How seriously would you hope that somebody takes learning these steps, relate, create, convict, reveal, or some plan to take somebody through the gospel? How, how much would it mean to you if your, if your eternity was at stake? Or if it was your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister or your best friend or parents, what if it was your child? How seriously would you want somebody to take their responsibility to learn how to present the gospel and show them? Would you want somebody to be as passionate and prepared as you are? Let me, I've got a couple closing illustrations and we'll be done. Christopher Searcy was playing basketball with his friends on May 16, 1998, when he was shot in the chest at the park. And a bullet perforated his, his uh, aorta and his friends, they helped him get to within 40 feet of the entrance to this hospital called the Ravenswood Hospital. And from there, then they ran inside and asked for help. But the hospital staff refused to help Christopher. They were saying that it was against the hospital's policy to administer aid to those outside the hospital. And eventually then a policeman was able to get a wheelchair and wheeled Christopher into the hospital where he was helped by the staff. But it was too late because Christopher died about an hour later. And I, and I give you that story because it's a picture of church life. Because so many churches are surrounded by people in desperate need for the gospel. But a lot of times we're waiting for them to come through the doors before we do anything about it. When in reality, you know what the Bible says? You know what Jesus said about the gospel? He said, go. And a lot of times we think, well, if they got to come and do our doors for us to present... But, but the, way that I, the way that I see Jesus Christ's command is the arena for the gospel is out there. It's outside these walls. But we have souls all around us. We've got houses being built all around us. We've got apartments all around us. And, we're to, and sometimes I think our mentality is, well, we're going to wait right here until they come in. They may never come in. They need somebody to take the gospel outside. But if we're going to do that, we better have a good plan and we better be passionate about souls. And sometimes I just wonder if we get complacent to the fact, well, it's settled for us. And I've got my life and I've got things I'm doing. And yet there are people that need our help desperately. And they're just outside the church walls. Second illustration I want to close with is this. On February 3rd, 1943, a troop ship named the Dorchester was carrying more than 900 soldiers and military personnel across the North Atlantic. And a German U-boat spotted them and shot three torpedoes. Only one struck the target, but it was below waterline and fatally damaged the ship. In that cold and darkness, the crew was ordered to abandon, but there weren't enough lifeboats, and nor were there enough life jackets. There were four chaplains on that boat, and and that night they helped comfort those who were injured in the explosion and then they were helping those who feared the coming of death. But when the ship was finally ready to sink, those four chaplains took off their life jackets and handed them to four young soldiers who didn't have any. And they gave up their lives in order to save others. And that gesture inspired many. Congress even voted a special posthumous medal in their honor and it made me think, you know, what lengths would I be willing to go to save somebody? See, when it comes to salvation, we're not asked to give up our lives. Jesus already did. No, we're asked to give up a Saturday morning. 
When you compare the two, it's really not that much. We're asked to give up our pride and be willing to to risk rejection. But compared to what Jesus has done, it's not that much. We're asked to give up a little bit of of our time. We're asked to give up some convenience. We're asked to give, give up um, our, our personality for just a minute. We're asked to give up ourself for just a little bit. He's not asking us to die. I mean, yes, he's asking us to die to self, but he's not asking us to physically die. He already did that. And now all he's asking is that his people will say, I'll be willing to step out my, outside my comfort zone and talk to my neighbor. I'd be willing to give two hours on a Saturday morning to let Sioux Falls know, this community know that Jesus Christ loves them, that Eastside's a good place to be. I'd be willing to set aside some conveniences and some other things that I'm doing so that I can give the gospel. Listen, that's it. That's it. We're not being asked to do anything except some time, some convenience, some maybe some pride, small inconveniences here or there. But listen, people need our help, and they're right outside the doors. They need the message but who's going to tell them if not us? How faithful have you been as a steward of the gospel? How prepared would you be to present it clearly today? And how willing are you to be involved in that which would be considered Eastside's most significant mission, which is the Great Commission? Because I believe it's time. And it's not about church programs as much as it is about a heart for people to experience what we've been blessed to experience in Jesus Christ. If you received it, how can you not passionately say, I'd be willing to give up some things so that somebody else can hear it too. Relate, create, convict, reveal. How prepared are you to give the gospel? And are you willing to let it cost you something so that somebody else can hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Just a moment, we'll have Brother Samuel sing and we'll have the instrument play. I've asked all the questions I I could think to ask. I think the Holy Spirit, now his work, is is the work that needs to be done. Do you have a plan? If the gospel is up to you, do you have a plan? Can you present it? But second, do you have passion for people? How's your passion for people? Because it's not just about a plan. It's about having a heart for the people you see and you know. How's your plan? How's your passion? Those two things. If we will catch those two things as a church, who knows what God can do through Eastside Baptist Church in our own community right here. I'm telling you, there's some good things ahead if we will catch a plan and we'll catch passion for the gospel. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.